This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. From time immemorial, beginning with indigenous councils and ancient wisdom traditions, through the work of Western visionaries such as Plato, Galileo, and quantum physicist David Bohm, mutually participatory dialogue has been seen as the key to evolving and transforming consciousness, evoking a flow of meaning, a dia flow of logos meaning, beyond what any one individual can bring through alone. So join us now as together with you, the active deep listener, we evoke and engage in living dialogues. Welcome to Living Dialogues. I'm your host, Duncan Campbell, and with me for this particular dialogue, I'm truly delighted to have as my guest, my great friend and colleague, Richard Tarnas, cultural historian and professor of philosophy and depth psychology, whose first book, the Passion of the Western Mind became both a bestseller and required reading eventually at many universities. A graduate of Harvard University, he is the founding director of the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness graduate program at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco and also teaches on the faculty of Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara. About his first book, The Passion of the Western Mind, Joseph Campbell had this to say, quote, The most lucid and concise presentation I have read of the grand lines of what every student should know about the history of Western thought. The writing is elegant and carries the reader with the momentum of a great novel, a noble performance, close quote. With respect to Cosmos and Psyche, his masterwork, published in 2006, William Van Dusen Wishard, the author of Between Two Ages, the 21st Century and the Crisis of Meeting, said, quote, It is hard to think of many books written in the past century that will still be read 200 years from now. Richard Tarnas's Cosmos and Psyche will top that short list. It is majestic, sweeping, and profound. This will be a book for the ages. It will stand over time with the seminal expressions of the human spirit. Close quote. And as you know, Rick, of course, we have done uh, several deep dialogues about both Passion of the Western Mind and Cosmos and Psyche, subtitled Intimations of a New World View. And this is a particularly timely dialogue we're now doing to follow on those earlier dialogues because it is in preparation for a great gathering that we are going to have in Fort Collins, Colorado, May 29 and May 30 of this year, 2009, entitled 2012 Now, Empowering the Transformation. And in leading up to that, since you are one of the presenters, I am one of the presenters, and I also serve as Master of Ceremonies, I have orchestrated this pilgrimage dialogue, if you will, a series of dialogues that are on the road to 2012 Now. And that is really in the tradition, it occurred to me, Rick, of something you would be very familiar with, which is Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which was one of the great medieval works in which uh, Geoffrey Chaucer 
broke with tradition where the focus of most literature until that time had been on the noble class, like Boccaccio's Decameron, the nobles fleeing the plague, and that collection of stories. And Chaucer was the first to group a set of shared stories under the rubric of, or the framing of, a pilgrimage. And here he has his characters leaving London and walking and spending the night at various inns, and they're walking on a pilgrimage toward the cathedral of Thomas a Becket at Canterbury. And so as they continue to walk toward the object of their pilgrimage, they are in effect on the pilgrimage already. And as they share stories, there is a revelation of the deep commonality of the human spirit. One of the great breakthroughs of Geoffrey Chaucer was to have characters that extended through all social classes. He had the Miller's Tale, the Wife of Bath, the Knight's Tale, and so on. And so here we are embarked on a series of pilgrimage dialogues, which are part of our 21st century evolution of consciousness, where all of us together coming to this gathering and all of those virtually listening on the internet or on the radio are participants in this great uh, psychic unfolding and co-creators of the energy field that is emerging already from this intentionality. And so with that background, I'm going to ask you, Rick, maybe to tell a little bit about your own personal journey that led you here, and then we'll embark on this journey together with shared stories and bring the ostensible subject matter, which is the event of the December 21st, 2012, end of the long count calendar of the Mayans into a larger framework of the primordial tradition, the great tradition of archetypal astrology in the Western world, which you have really revivified in your masterwork, uh, Cosmos and Psyche. Well, thank you for welcoming me here, Duncan, and uh, good to be back in this in this uh, in this series. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I in thinking about the journey that I've taken here, I suppose uh, one could I could look right back to the fact that I come out of a uh, a European um, Christian and Catholic background for for which of course Chaucer was embedded in and uh, that was the whole processional and um, the the sacred festivals that went through the year uh, were as characteristic of of that world as they are of any good uh, indigenous society that lives in a in a uh, sacralized um, world so I, I, there's that in the background, though, of course, by taking the um, more characteristic path of modernity into uh, the modern engagement with um, a cosmos that's been shaped by the scientific revolution in our, our, our collective psyche, and by kind of absorbing, as anybody who gets a good, or received a good 20th century education, uh, received a, a kind of forging of a of a skeptical and critical um, intellectual engagement with life and the world, and so that moves one into a very different relationship to to these mysteries. And I suppose it's been my journey, which uh, is not unusual. It's very similar to so many others over the last. Uh, uh, 
50 years is a journey in which one, in a sense, moves from that kind of childhood womb of meaning uh, into the uh, into the light of common day, to your, use Wordsworth's uh, famous phrase, uh, the, the romantic poet, uh, and then um, in, through a longer, deeper, transformative process, one comes back into relationship to a mystery that uh, perhaps we could say points to the existence of an ensouled cosmos after all, but perhaps a little more uh, complex and multidimensional and extraordinary than than our childhood uh, version of it, and one that uh, in some sense represents a synthesis of the of the more uh, modern and scientific and rational and, and uh, uh, materially empirical, uh, uh, a synthesis of that with the more um, uh, mythopoetic, uh, spiritually informed um, uh, consciousness that is characteristic of uh, the, the the shamanic traditions and the um, and the uh, romantic uh, cultural tradition within the within the West. So, uh, in a way, my journey has kind of replicated that, which I think so many of my um, uh, of our uh, of the last century have had an experience like that. I could point out the the big stages within that for me were certainly. Uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, when when I was um, at at Harvard, as you mentioned, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Cambridge was like every college uh, university center in certainly in the United States and England and really I think most uh, Europe and mo- most of the world. These were centers of tremendous countercultural. Uh, ferment and new ideas and radical changes of perspective and, and practice were taking place. And it was also the time of the psychedelic revolution where sacred medicines uh, were coming into uh, widespread use. Uh, and in that, um, in that process, many, many people's worldview uh, w- was opened up radically. And at the same time, the, the great Asian uh, mystical traditions were were entering very strongly into the Western consciousness, uh, coming from uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and Sufism as well. Uh, so, in in all those respects, there was quite a, a a transformation of consciousness that is you know still unfolding in our time. And on top of that, uh, or I should say. For me, mediate, mediating that was uh, the decision I made after leaving college uh, to do my graduate education out here in California. And I then met uh, Stanislav Grof and began 10 years of living and uh, working, studying at the uh, Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, where, where many remarkable teachers were. Joseph Campbell and Gregory Bateson, um, uh, Houston Smith, uh, and Stan uh, Groff was a very significant scholar in residence there 
during those years, and I eventually became the, the, the director of programs. But for all the time that I was there, I was also a student and, a, um, you know, basically kind of assimilating these extraordinary streams of, of uh, thought and un- understanding that were, were really kind of opening up the more constrained vision that has been the price that we've paid for the conventional modern um, mode of consciousness that, that has brought us you know, many technological and, and, and scientific um, gifts but at the same time at a, at a price, uh, a price of uh, what we could use, to, uh, perhaps sum up most concisely with the word disenchantment, the, the disenchanted universe, that, uh, that's, that's uh, Max Weber's uh, famous um, term to describe the, the universe that emerged out of the uh, scientific revolution and the kind of rational objectification of, of the world and the um, eclipsing of that, of the uh, those dimensions of mystery that uh, cannot be comprehended or uh, penetrated by the reductionist uh, uh, mind. Bit of a journey uh, description that brings us up uh, anyway into the into the 1970s and 80s, and and from then on, it was uh, my own sort of personal. Um, Writing and research that uh, uh, came out of that that gestating matrix or womb of uh, uh, processes that I'd been through up until that point. It's very a very wonderful summary and explanation that you give there as the very fine cultural historian and philosopher that you are. And it's very similar to my own journey. As you and I know, as we've mentioned before, we found ourselves together in many of these same places at different times. You and I were both at Harvard in Cambridge. I was there from 67 to 70 in the law school, and you were there 68 to 72 as an undergraduate. And we were both there during the two years of the Harvard strike during the Vietnam era. And also, as you point out, all this tremendous ferment of the pillar, we might say, of the rational mind at Harvard University, one of our great universities, dedicated to the search for knowledge through reason. And I would say that the law school was even more a temple of that than the undergraduate curriculum. But they were both heavily marked by that. For instance, the philosophy department in those days was dominated by English analytic philosophers who were very different than the existentialist philosophers or those influenced by Nietzsche or the Romantic era, uh, Frederick Hegel. Hegel, for instance, and Heidegger and so on were really absent for the most part from the curriculum there. And it was really in the margins of that university curriculum that people like yourself and myself, who became seekers of a larger truth, who were open to the beginning inroads of the mystical Eastern traditions that began to show up on or near campus that also were exposed to the other indigenous traditions that began to filter through. And I think it's very interesting that both of us then moved out west. I wound up going to Colorado, where I became a student of a Tibetan 
teacher who was bringing with him a particular very refined and evolved uh, spiritual system from the East uh, that's now become quite common knowledge with the emergence of the Dalai Lama and the whole Tibetan tradition, Robert Thurman uh, popularizing it, and so on. And you went all the way out to California and joined with Stanislav Grof, one of the great pioneers in consciousness research, whom you lived and worked with there in the same house for a number of years. And you opened to the natural world by going to California, out of that kind of cerebellum that really was the, you might say, the, the heritage of our Atlantic European culture in the Cambridge University environment. It was very the neo, much... The neocortex uh, of, the, of the Western self, you know, all the universities throughout the, throughout the land. Well, you know, that's very funny you say that, really. I had very much that uh, sense of being in the grayness of the cerebellum when I was in the East Coast University system, particularly there in Cambridge during the long winters that tended to be, uh, you know, on the Atlantic coast, very gray, and you spent a lot of time indoors and a lot of time uh, really with books and thinking, and nothing wrong with that, except that we really yearn for a kind of deeper balance and a kind of exposure to the natural world that really called me when I went west. I remember there was a sense of real romantic uh, feeling arising spontaneously within me about going to the Rocky Mountains and imagining being the forests and the mountains and so on, and then later migrating myself out to California and to the ocean. And so very much, I think, it is a matter of balancing out this excessive emphasis on the thinking mind and opening up to the wonder of the natural world and to the revelations that can happen when we do rediscover an enchanted universe, one that is uh, fully seen as completely conscious, that it's not simply there for our um, manipulation for empowering the human, but it's there to be lived in mutual participation uh, with the landscape itself, with the earth itself, with the plant kingdom, with the other members of the animal kingdom. And it's people like Barry Lopez, the great nature poet, who in Arctic dreams during this period actually wrote the following line, which was that the land itself is an animal which contains all animals. So there we had a poetic expression of this uncovering yes. of the living universe. And since this is so central to uh, what you have experienced and what I have experienced on our journey and in your and I'm work. I'm sure many of our uh, listeners as well. Absolutely. And in your work and in my work and that of all of our listeners, I think let's now talk about that. Let's talk about how in this particular conference that's coming up here, this will be yet another step on the great road of re-enchanting the universe as we did the last time when you and I were participants in the Joseph Campbell centenary celebration that was organized by Stan Groff and Christina and that you helped organize as well in Palm Springs, which was entitled uh, The Reenchantment of the Universe. So when we come together in this conference, a very similar intentionality is present. We're not coming just to accumulate information and data about an inert universe to protect ourselves against something that might happen in the external world that might threaten our economic well-being or our spiritual well-being, but we're at there to enter into a loving and direct and open-hearted engagement with this beautiful transformation process that's now 
well underway in both our inner and external world. So let's talk about how you began to articulate that so beautifully in The Passion of the Western Mind and then how that led you to the elaboration you made in Cosmos and Psyche. Well, uh, Passion of the Western Mind is uh, uh, an, a, basically an attempt to narrate the epic of the Western uh, mind and spirit, and uh, especially as it attempted to comprehend uh, the nature of the cosmos, the nature of the human being's uh, uh, role in the cosmos, and uh, therefore looking at or seeking to uh, come to terms with the nature of the divine, uh, the meaning of history, if there is a, a meaning, uh, uh, the, the purpose of the universe, if, if there is a purpose. These kinds of issues and questions, these large worldview questions, can be seen as um, framing the whole spiritual and intellectual development of the West from the ancient Greeks and the, and the uh, Hebrews right up to the present moment, which is now... Uh, our, our kind of late postmodern period that is so multicultural, multi-perspectival, uh, uh, and in flux. Uh, and so this, it seemed to me that we would be well served by uh, taking um, the most, you know, everything that we, we could, all the information that had accumulated over the decades as much as possible in our scholarship and in our, our, our personal experiences that had kind of broken out of the, the limiting paradigm of modernity uh, and yet knew there was great value in that paradigm and to somehow try to shine a light on this long history in which we have a sense of um, <clears throat> an an end of some sort happening, certainly an enormous turning point, but even the sense of something ending and, and, and dying and something beginning and, and being born. So this, uh, this moment of, of death and rebirth that is so many people have a, a, a poignant uh, sense is happening provided us with or provides us now with a with a place to look back on our history and on the nature of our uh, evolving worldview with new eyes and to perhaps bring the insights that come much when a person is at the end of their life they they can see their entire life from a different perspective um, that's different than when they're in the middle of the of the journey, there's a kind of, um, well, uh, a, a kind of uh, depth and, and, and a level of insight just emerges spontaneously for so many people in those later uh, moments of, uh, of, of life that's very similar to, as Hegel put it, uh, for a civilization. When a civil, it's only when a civilization is nearing uh, a the ending of a whole mode of being that its meaning becomes clear to itself, and I suspect that in some ways that's that's the moment that we're at. That there's a 
um, we're in a position to to look back on the whole with with new eyes. So that that was a great uh, part of my um, motive in writing Passion of the Western Mind. Also, the fact that you know the generation that came of age in the '60s so uh, strongly rebelled against what it called the establishment that it threw um, it, it threw a lot of babies out with the bathwater. Uh, there was a cutting off of the tradition uh, in such a uh, often unthinking way that many people lost that sense of a continuity and an awareness of the of the actual wisdom that our elders in this tradition had had brought forth and left for us, so that you know Socrates and and uh, Nietzsche and Thomas Aquinas, uh, uh, they're remarkable people who have left extraordinary uh, insights that we are um, impoverishing ourselves if we don't uh, assimilate them. And also, we lose that historical... um, Grounding that is necessary to create the future. I, I remember uh, the historian Daniel Burstein once said that trying to create the future with, without uh, understanding one's past is like is like planting cut flowers. And uh, there's a um, a necessity to keep a continuity, a coherent uh, uh, connection. With our with our history, and that was an, another big motive in in writing Passion of the Western Mind, where I kind of I, I wanted this book to serve as much as possible as a as a kind of bridge for the emerging young counterculture generation and the longer tradition of which uh, it was really an expression, because that's one of the paradoxes of the West is that the West is true to itself when it rebels against itself because the whole Western impulse from the time of the Socratic philosophers uh, and the the pre-Socratic philosophers and the Hebrew prophets on is to look at what's been said before, seek to understand it as well as possible, and then critique it and try to uh, bring forth a wider or deeper horizon of, of understanding that recontextualizes what's happened at what's been seen and understood before us. So even in the very act of being um, a rebel, uh, a critic, um, an innovator, one is actually serving in the procession of the, of the long tradition. So I wanted to, to write a book that would um, serve that, that longer uh, tradition of of self uh, transformation and reinvention, and that's really beautifully stated because it says many things at the same time, and one of them is the ability to celebrate with discernment the creativity and the boldness of the modern mind coming out of our indigenous matrix, and at the same time not fall prey to the very dangerous hubris of the adolescent mind in rebellion. And that is one way that I speak about it in terms of the either-or mind, 
Uh, you said that in part of that rebellion in the 60s, that kind of healthy rebellion against uh, what had become really an oppressive and in many cases hypocritical expression in many ways in the culture of the expression of power, the lack of truth-telling in the media around the civil rights movement and particularly around the Vietnam War and so on, uh, was a very healthy reaction. It engendered eventually not only the successes that took place with the civil rights movement and the peace movement and feminism and the giving birth to the environmental movement, all of them necessary correctives to imbalances that were within the civilization and within the system. But at the same time, it did make a very either-or break with tradition. The rallying cry in those days was, don't trust anyone over 30 which is, when you look at it, a very radical statement and very dangerous statement because it means that we basically banished elders from the equation. And that's because the people that did hold power were not being truth-tellers, were not expressing the depth of the tradition, but actually were themselves perhaps even arguably more of an adolescent expression uh, than uh, the people that were rebelling against them. And so... I'm thinking here of the need for us now together to evolve a true intergenerational dialogue that's mutually respectful and appreciative and that realizes that the elders in our society do have a lived experience which, if lived authentically, does begin to give birth. And all traditions recognize this to a deeper kind of perspective and wisdom about the nature of the life's journey. At the same time, the younger generation has a wonderful uh, enthusiasm and idealism and vital expressiveness. And uh, creativity and, and innovative uh, uh, quality that's so characteristic of youth as well. Absolutely, and I was going to express the very same thing. And so we're right tuned in like two musical instruments here. Rick, this is terrific because I'm reminded now Matthew Fox at one point said, and this was quoted, by the way, by our mutual friend, Drew Dellinger, who recently was in dialogue with me. We had a wonderful time together talking about the intergenerational dialogue with me being 25 years his senior, Drew being even younger than Barack Obama, and really possessed of a wonderful blend of the political engagement and also the poetic consciousness and the mystical cosmological study that he's done with Thomas Berry and Susan Griffin and yourself and Stan Groff and others at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And, and he was quoting Matthew Fox, who has been on this program as well, saying that in the Celtic tradition, of which I'm a part, uh, incidentally, with Scottish and Irish heritage, he said, in the Celtic tradition, they say there are two sources of wisdom, and they are the elders that have a youthful mind and the young people who are old souls. So there's that sense of meeting a combination of sacred marriage of youth and elder qualities within the same persons. One has longer time on the planet in this lifetime than the other, and yet they can meet in a tremendously beautiful and co-creative Union And there, I think, is really what has been brought to bear here in your own work. You talk, as I do, about sacred marriage and hieros gamos and, and many different dimensionalities. And one of them is the marriage between an elder culture that we are now recreating ourselves. At one point, Coleman Barks said, in a sense, we're trying to create a civilization without elders. 
meaning that we have to reestablish our connection to this dialogue, the deep primordial traditions, to the deep perennial philosophy that we all share as humans, and at the same time recognize that the present is different than the past. It's not about going backward. It's about combining the best of our deep indigenous heritage and the best of our modern mind creativity. And I think that's really what happened in your great preliminary work, uh, The Passion of the Western Mind. And I just wanted to quote a couple of things from it to launch the next part of our dialogue, which I thought were very powerful within that book, where you talked about Nietzsche earlier. And Nietzsche, you quote in the book, he was one of my favorite philosophers when I was in college, as someone who saw earlier than many the epical crisis that would come in the 20th century when the culture would finally come to terms with the modern mind's destruction of the metaphysical world, the disenchantment of the world in favor of a scientific understanding that objectified it and made it subject to certain laws that could be manipulated by the human consciousness. And so his great expression was, God is dead. In other words, we have, in a sense, made ourselves supreme and put out of our world that enchanted mystery that sometimes is called God, creator, consciousness, whatever. And, and here's what you quote Nietzsche saying. What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there not still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? End of quote. And this turns out, of course, to have been a great prophetic statement when we look at the history of the 20th century and the existential crisis that arose uh, really all over the planet and the great conflicts that took place throughout the 20th century. And that now as we're entering the 21st century, there seems to be the emergence of a possibility, uh, particularly in this time of the recording of this dialogue, when Barack Obama has emerged as a voice of hope and potential remaking of the world in the midst of even further destruction of the financial system, uh, recognition that our educational system is failing us, our healthcare system, and so on. And you say in one of your chapters words from Nietzsche's Zarathustra that are very relevant to today, a century and more later. Uh, and I quote these. Uh, Nietzsche says in his book, Thus Spake Zarathustra, Quote, and how could I endure to be a man if man were not also poet and reader of riddles and a way to new dawns? Close quote. And this is our challenge. I think we agree today that it's a matter of how we read the riddles of the mythical and the poetic and the signs that are in the cosmos and that are in the natural world that are guiding us potentially to a new dawn. And that's part of the project very consciously that we're engaging in in this conference where we will come together on May 29 and 30 in Fort Collins to share stories and perspectives of a new, fresh way of understanding uh, the world in a conscious way beyond where the culture has, for the moment, become, we might say, in the conventional sense, marooned. 
important points you've made there. One um, has to do with this uh, paying attention to the cosmos and nature for the, as it were, the the suggestive clues, the hints, the the um, the ways by which the whole can help the part be aligned with the um, wiser flow of the of the um, of the of the whole system, rather than be cut off in its own um, kind of hubris. And then, on the other hand, there's this uh, point you were making earlier about a, a kind of generational error that was made by um, the excesses of the of the uh, '60s, where there was um, that absolute cutting off of you know the the elders of the tradition of not trusting anybody over 30, hope I die before I get old, that kind of um, uh, approach, which I'm just thinking of Peter Townsend from who saying he, right. he, hears, he hears those words in a di- different light now mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when he said, hope I die before I get old. What I think we're seeing there, you know, when you talked about what the elders uh, were responsible for, what the establishment was was uh, being criticized for and, and uh, why the revolution was happening. All those things that you described, the, the media, the hypocrisy, the, um, the, the issues around uh, the Vietnam War, how familiar those sound now uh, with what we've just been through for the last eight years. And uh, there seems to be a new opportunity that's emerged for all the generations that are alive right now to re-engage this, this challenge, this polarity, this, this great opposition, dichotomy between the old and the new, between the, the generations, between the, the sense of um, breaking into new horizons with greater... Uh, freedom and exploration and experiment, and at the same time um, having uh, a uh, the paying attention to the claims of of the past, of history, of tradition, of rigor, of structures, and so forth. And I think by there being such a severe bifurcation in the '60s, which has come down to what was called the culture wars over these last uh, couple of decades. Um, we've we've suffered uh, tremendously, and it's, I think it's one reason why there has been the need for uh, un, uh, why the whole drama reappeared, reconstellated itself in in our time. Um, you know, a generation later, it has something to do with the fact that there was a kind of mutual demonization uh, that took place earlier. Uh, there was not a a synthesis of opposites, a, a uh, you know the sacred marriage of the of, of the two sides. There was not that uh, willingness that that Jung called on uh, us to have to be psychologically capable of holding two opposing uh, principles faithfully uh, and intensively enough until the transcending third that 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 new 
position or, or entity or mode of being that spontaneously emerges uh, after there has been a sufficient holding of the uh, tension of opposites. So there's a, um, when I think somebody like Obama in some respects represents that impulse to, I mean, he, it was very interesting to see him uh, engage McCain during the, um, during the campaign when here he is, the, you know, the, the literally African-American, uh, young, much younger candidate, the, uh, representing the, the, the more uh, liberal and progressive, and he's the, uh, part of the spectrum. Uh, he's, he's the fruit of the civil rights movement. He's, he's uh, anti-war he's, uh, and so forth in all these ways. And yet, when it came to uh, the, the mode of the, 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 the temperament, the sensibility, the mode of action and, and character that was displayed during the campaign, which I think played such a big role in how the election went, was that uh, Obama had an almost uncanny equilibrium and caution and prudence. Uh, and by comparison, um, you know, his opponent was far more erratic and, and unpredictable and uh, uh, in his own way a kind of radical. And I think uh, Obama represents a, a, a collective shift in which we're perhaps a little more ready than we were before to see the, uh, the more complex reality uh, rather than to see there uh, any particular problem is having a simple uh, black versus white or um, yes or no uh, uh, solution. It it's, it's involves much more of an uh, intricate, deep, thoughtful, patient response to, to the, the, the complexity of life and, and synthesizing the opposites. So if I could then link that up with your subsequent point about um, uh, where we are today and how a different view of the cosmos could be helpful to us right now. It, in both cases, um, the, the challenge seems to be for this powerful human spirit that ha- has taken the form in modernity of a uh, a kind of Promethean solar hero uh, uh, rebel that is breaking forth into new horizons of of, of freedom and knowledge and uh, self-realization, but has done so at a cost of both cutting off history, uh, tradition, the past, uh, the wisdom of other cultures, of, of the indigenous ancestors, and has also done so at the cost of cutting off the uh, recognition of the intelligence and soul of the whole, that is, of nature and the earth and the cosmos, and instead presumed these qualities as being m- only human, as if uh, only human beings, exclusively human beings, had the properties of intelligent, purposeful uh, uh, awareness and 
um, capacity for uh, emotion and uh, meaning and spirit. And by arrogating these things to uh, the human self and saying that the universe is, is nothing but disenchanted atoms and, and genes and black holes uh, that are accidentally uh, have somehow brought forth this oddity of human consciousness, we've, we've both created a spiritual and psychological crisis for the modern self, isolated in its prison of, of estrangement, but we've also brought forth a, uh, a ver- very real biological, ecological, global crisis because the tyranny of the uh, separated self empowered by this incredibly uh, uh, powerful technology um, has been wreaking havoc to its own um, self-destructive consequence. So uh, I think there's a real com- there's, there's really a common um, thread here that connects up the the generational, um, historical, cultural challenges that we went through uh, 40 years ago and are, again, now engaging perhaps with greater uh, wisdom and experience, and the, and the larger uh, challenge of modernity and post-modernity, post-modernity which is to come into uh, a more participatory, reciprocal engagement and with, the, with, with the larger whole of life rather than to presume our separate superiority, which is a kind of recipe for uh, hubris and, and disaster. And that's really a theme that I want to touch on as we continue with our dialogue, is the notion that you put forth of participatory epistemology. A fancy and yet very elegant term for how we know. If epistemology is the study of how we know, the great discovery of reenchanting the universe and reopening to awakening our indigenous knowledge, which is that the entire cosmos is infused with a soulfulness, an anima mundi, we might say, of the cosmos, that everything is infused with consciousness, with spirit, and being able to actually experience that and not to experience the world only reductively through the rational mind. We open up a whole huge vista here in our experience that means we're in dialogue with a living universe at all times and we can be receptive to the revelations of that universe rather than trying to impose the grid or superimpose the grid of a, an ideology, of a religion, of a particular uh, worldview that becomes either or and exclusive rather than paradoxical and holding the space for a multitude of different perspectives with the confidence that out of that holding of that space uh, a logos or a coherence, uh, a higher resolution, appreciating the integrity of all the differences will emerge. And that concludes part one of my dialogue with Richard Tarnas on the road of 2012 now. Be with us again next time for part two of my dialogue with Richard Tarnas on the road of 2012 now here on Living Dialogues. 2012 Now, Empowering the Transformation, 
a uniquely innovative, interactive, and affordable gathering in this time of global uncertainty, will take place Friday night and all day Saturday, May 29 and 30, at the Lincoln Center for Performing Arts in Fort Collins. Beyond just information to practical tools for change and direct experience of participating in the ongoing transformation of our times, now is the time and the opportunity to synchronize consciousness with the evolutionary pulse of the cosmos. Join world-renowned speakers as we explore and experience together the transformative dynamics necessary for a successful transit from now through the year 2012 and beyond. Featuring Stanislav Grof, Richard Tarnas, John Major Jenkins, Saban Fusome, Duncan Campbell, William Henry, Robert Sittler, and Christine Page. More information available on the website www.unveiling2012.org. See you there. And visit us on my website, livingdialogues.com. That's living, D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E-S dot com. And if you'd like to listen to additional archived visionary dialogues with myself and other transformational thinkers listed on my livingdialogues.com website, once you have entered your subscription to the Living Dialogues podcast here on Personal Life Media, future Living Dialogues will automatically be downloaded to your computer on a weekly basis. Or simply browse through the list of programs here whenever you like, download them, or listen to them on your computer. Thanks again for your deep listening in evoking this program. All the very best. And stay tuned now after the music for some very interesting opportunities available to you as a listener to Living Dialogues. Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.